Welcome to the Bully Pulpit Podcast. My name is Joshua Holo, your host, and it is my great pleasure to welcome Reverend Jennifer Bailey, founder and executive director of Faith Matters. Welcome, Reverend Bailey. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. I'd like to uh, begin by asking you about what does racial justice actually mean? You know, there's this belief that after the civil rights movement, everything was made right. But as we see continuing to manifest in the world today, whether it be on the streets of Ferguson or in the halls of Congress, there's still real tension. And if we look at numerous statistics, whether it be around criminal justice, poverty, um, educational inequality, health disparities, it's clear when you break down those statistics along demographic lines that black and brown folks often sit at the bottom of that. I think racial justice, as we think about it in the context of the United States, means creating a world in which people of all different backgrounds, skin colors, and racial identities are brought to a space of equality. Do you find yourself having to re-articulate or reshape an argument because your perception of racial inequality might be belied in the eyes of many when they see someone like Mayor Villarregos in Los Angeles or President Obama, people of color, uh, and they would then say to you, but the president is black. Does that pose an impediment for you or does that force you to re-articulate your argument? I don't know that it forces me to re-articulate my argument. I think it forces me to dive deeper into my argument. As we think about structural racism versus individual racism, and I want to make that distinction because what I'm talking about isn't someone calling me a bad name because I'm African-American, right? right? What I'm talking about are centuries-old policies and traditions, and I call it traditions because our, the, the question of race in America predates the founding of the American Republic. You know, the first slaves were here in the 1600s. And so when we see a black man in the Oval Office, and we certainly see it as a marker of progress because my grandfather never would have believed that that could happen, right, right. in his lifetime. Um, but when you see the poverty rate, the child poverty rate, right, when you see the levels of incarceration, when we know that an uh, African-American man in the United States is more likely to go to prison than college, there's still something wrong in the formation and foundations, right? You made a very careful distinction between individual racism versus collective racism, and it seems to me that those who are politically, ideologically, or emotionally disinclined to see racism, one of the reasons they're disinclined to see it is because they have difficulty looking through the lens of collectivities or collectivism at all. Mm -hmm. And uh, they then go to those token oh, meritocracies because that tokenism, not whether they're black or brown or whether they're meritocratic or not, but because they're token, for them is a vindication of the individualist approach to understanding the world. Mm -hmm. How does that figure into your thinking? Because it's, it, it's prior to the racial or racism question. It's a, it's, it's a fundamental question of how you view the human experience. Right. And I, it's interesting because I'm a reverend, right? So <laughs> I belong and I'm held accountable to a religious tradition, a centuries-old religious tradition. And my denomination, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, is the oldest historically black denomination in the United States. Our, our foundations were in Philadelphia in 1787. And as folks know, there are a lot of important things happening in Philadelphia in 1787. Um, 
And I love to tell the story of my denomination in part because it reorients us to a collective mindset. So the legend goes that Richard Allen, our founder and first bishop, was praying at St. George Methodist Episcopal Church, which was a predominantly white congregation, um, and black folks were forced to sit in the balcony. And he went down to kneel at the altar and was told to get up because black folks shouldn't be praying at the altar in front of white folks. So the legend has it that he got up and was followed out by the black congregants and started his own church and a blacksmith shop. And even today, our the emblem of our church is a cross and an anvil. And, and so I like to say that I come from a tradition that was founded in protest to racial injustice, but was also founded with a collective mindset. And so when I think about this question of racial justice, I think about this question of community versus individual. And I believe that there are many folks who have bought into an individual mindset, the if I can make it, anybody else can, the pull ourselves up by our own books, bootstraps methodology. But as a person of faith and as a person of faith in a historically black denomination, I think I am wrapped up in the well-being of community. And as a religious leader, I have to be concerned about the collective. No doubt. I think the concern about the collective and the identification with the collective is something that Jews understand. Our covenant with God is understood to be a collective one. It's not a faith statement of an individual in relation to God. It's a participatory thing, and this has shaped our experience um, uh, at every stage of our long history. So I think we get that, but the argument mm -hmm. to someone who doesn't buy it or who thinks that they haven't benefited from a collective, uh, that strikes me as a harder sell in, in some circles, in, in some arguments. I think you're absolutely right, and that's one of the many reasons I founded the Faith Matters Network, which really focuses on the American South as a testing ground. W.E.B. Du Bois said that as goes the South, so goes the nation. And if we can move the South, right? <laughs> in, in the South, there are so many poor folk, poor white folk and poor black folk, that in my opinion, um, vote against their interest, right? And, and I think it is this question of this tension between the individual and the collective, right? The idea that as an individual, I can, I can make it, I can make it. But at the same time, the reality is for so many of those folks, the policies and structures that we put in place, don't. there's a ceiling. Often. So let's, let's talk about that ceiling a little bit. Yeah. Give us an example of a policy ceiling that has repercussions in the lives of actual people going about their business. So I'm going to go way back, back into time, <laughs> and talk about the Social Security Act. You try to get old folks to take away their Social Security check, yeah, and you will get go. a fight, right? Even the most politically conservative of folks, I think, you know, things like Medicare and sure. Social they, Security, they paid into it, they, they, paid into it, they want out of it. But what most folks know is that when the Social Security Act was founded, it excluded explicitly agricultural workers and domestic workers. Now, it was said to be a race-neutral and sort of poverty-neutral policy, but when we look at the demographics of who were domestic workers and who were agricultural workers in the United States yeah. at that time, disproportionately people of color, still. right? And still disproportionately people of color. So who got those Social Security checks? What were they able to do with that money? And how did that get seeded into their families? When black folks were disproportionately shut out of those systems, then people wonder, you know, 50, 60, 70 years later, why people haven't caught up yet. That's just one example, I think, of that, that is really, 
at the core of our social safety net that most people don't know the history. <laughs> so tell us about um, some of the things you've been doing at uh, Faith Matters. I founded the Faith Matters Network through a, com- a foundation fellowship at the Nathan Cummings Foundation in New York City. And the question that I was asking myself as part of that fellowship project is this question, does faith still matter? And moving people around progressive policy issues, the core issues at the heart of my faith. Christ in Matthew 25 says, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was homeless, you gave me shelter. These are core things that unfortunately in today's political landscape have been framed as liberal, quote unquote, issues, working on things like poverty, inequality, affordable housing. It just so happened that my first day at the Cummings Foundation in New York was a week before Ferguson erupted. And being from the Midwest and spending a lot of time in the greater St. Louis area, it struck me at the core of my being. And so over the past year, I've explored and gotten to know people throughout the South, which opened up the doors to having really interesting cross-racial conversations among different religious communities. And so this work has really manifested into something that we've been calling moral imagination retreats, where we're bringing together um, religious leaders. Thanks. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Success. Moral imagination retreats where we bring together faith leaders and folks of what we would call a faith and moral courage, right? So, and defining faith leaders broadly, not just as clergy, but as laity and folks that are doing good work, to really dive into the root causes of this inequality that we see in the world, with race being um, the one that's most on our lips right now. So one way that that's manifesting is that we're doing a pilot program of the first Moral Imagination Retreat this November in partnership with a couple of really great groups um, showing up for racial justice, which is a national coalition of white folks who are organizing other white folks around racial justice, um, Jews for Racial and Economic Justice, the Unitarian Universalist Association, um, Auburn Seminary in New York City. And the first retreat is really focused on revisioning race and racial justice within white faith communities. Because when I think about, you know, this past summer and the massacre at Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, which is one of the flagship congregations of my own denomination and thinking about... It's it's um, a historic, it's a storied congregation. It's a storied congregation in Charleston, South Carolina that was burned down in the 19th century when a slave ride was planned out of it, right? Um, It's a storied lightning rod. It's a storied lightning rod. It's a story of resistance. It's a symbol of resistance to certain forms of oppression in our nation. And one of the things that struck me coming out of Charleston that beyond... what I would call righteous rage that I was feeling after the buildup, after death, after death, Michael Brown, Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, Rakia McBoyd, um, Sandra Bland, all of these folks making headlines as I was thinking about Charleston in particular. It struck me that Dylan Roof, the the young 20-year-old young white man who is espousing very old ideas, I'm afraid black folks are taking over this country. They're going to rape and pillage our women. How did this 20-year-old, this millennial, get indoctrinated with ideas that have been around since the 19th century, 18th century, around blackness? Dylan was raised in somebody's church. And the question for me became, what are white folks doing who are forming these young people? And what aren't they saying, more important, 
than what they are saying in some ways um, that influences their religious formation or moral and ethical formation or what what is the absence of that that there could be a disconnect between um, a young Christian man sitting in Bible study with other Christians like on a very basic level for an hour for an hour than pulling out a gun and killing nine of them um, and so coming out of Charleston, I think there was a lot of momentum. There are a lot of people of faith, and particularly white folks of faith, who are interested in diving in and wanting to call their local AME church and show up physically um, that next Sunday. And what I wanted to say is have conversations with people in your congregation about these issues. And so part of the impetus for the Moral Imagination Retreat, and this first one came out of that movement. Um, the group, one of our partner groups showing up for racial justice had a conversation with a national call, actually, with white faith leaders after Charleston. Over 400 people jumped on that call, wanting and thirsting for something to do. And so as we think about moving that program forward, um, we're interested in both doing events and partnering with folks to examine racial justice within white communities, having white folks talk to other white folks about it, um, because quite frankly, it, those spaces can sometimes feel violent for me. I don't, I don't, you need to air out your mess and deal with and wrestle with it, and I don't know that I need to be there for right, that. Right. At the same time, I think the question being asked by faith leaders of color is a little bit different. How do you deal with the enduring trauma of racial violence and racial oppression that manifests in our communities? Because a video, the video of Eric Gardner wasn't just a video that went viral, that was somebody's son, right? Who likely worshiped in somebody's congregation. And I think this, the trauma of the past year has been these images constantly bombarding black and brown folks. And so our second moral imagination retreat, which we're hoping to host early in next year, will be focused on healing for racial, from racial trauma for faith leaders of color. And so again, it's a really interesting time to be alive, and you know, I'm I'm 28 years old, and grew up in a context where people were arguing at the beginning of the century whether or not we were post-racial. Right. I don't really have any cognizant memories of the Rodney King um, beating, right? That happened when I was in kindergarten, right? And so the last time we had a really deep national conversation on race was almost two decades ago. Not that these conversations haven't been happening in communities of color. And so I think part of the challenge for my generation and part of the, what I would call righteous rage you see on the streets of Ferguson and in different contexts is uh, a frustration with broken promises. And I realized too that I'm an upper middle class black girl who went to Tufts University, right? right? I got a particular, in Vanderbilt, I had a particular type of access to power and carry a certain type of privilege. I think what was disrupting for people um, of my demographic is that we were taught if we put our heads down and just did the right thing that we would be fine, right? Um, and I realized that that's a, problem, a, a problematic in that the majority of black and brown folk don't have access to those type of powers and like have these reasonable right and when and by the way when when people say put your head down what they mean is speak without a black american accent they mean uh they mean all kinds of things that are in fact an imposition they don't mean just put your nose to the grindstone and do a good job they mean whiten up a bit that can get pretty unfair pretty fast right it helps that my parents name me jennifer bailey so i've never had the experience that some of my peers have had of having a resume 
pushed to the side because of a particular name. Right. Right. One of the beautiful things that I've seen happen over the past year is an awakening of the consciousness of a lot of millennial upper middle class black folks. So I think about Bree Newsome, who's the young woman in North South Carolina that, you know, climbed the flagpole and took down the Confederate flag quoting scripture, by the way, as she was doing it. She was quoting Psalm 23. I think the words she said as she grabbed the flag were, was, I come against you in the name of God. So there's an interesting, some, there's something happening with religion. Yeah. That's scary as hell. <laughs> because we're used to people coming against us in the name of God. Mm. And uh, we don't, uh, yeah. well, I can't speak for all the Jews, but as a, especially as a medieval historian, wow, that um, as, yeah. as righteous as I can, um, as easily as it is for me to get on the bandwagon of that particular act yeah. of resistance because I'm sympathetic with it, just happens to be my politics. When yeah. I'm working. Take down the Confederate flag, I'm super happy with mm-hmm. that. But when I hear that moral rage coming from a place mm-hmm. of majority certainty mm-hmm. that Christianity enjoys, I freak out. I get scared. Yeah, that's so interesting. That's so interesting. Um, and something that I would not have thought about, right? And quoting what I see as my scripture. Mm. In, a, in, in a particularist, exclusivist way. Of course, Jews understand that scripture is something that has been adopted by other cultures. But Judaism as a system doesn't understand scripture as belonging to everybody. It understands scripture as belonging to the Jews. It was mm. in Hebrew. It's in our language. It was revealed, as it were, to our people. To have that then uh, used as a tool even when it's not against us, in this case, even when it's on our behalf in the sense that many Jews are are comfortable with taking down the Confederate flag. Wow. Uh, Very, very dicey proposition. It's so interesting. This is why I love engaging in interfaith dialogue, right? Right. Um, Because for me, reading this through the lens of black Christianity, which some people would argue that white folks and black folks don't worship the same God, right? That, of course. That our, our canon, as we understand scripture, starts in Exodus and not Genesis, right? That we read things through a particular liberative lens and that that lens is so deeply entrenched Absolutely. in who we are. So when I see the image of Brie taking down that flag, what I see her coming against in a righteous rage is a system of white supremacy that served to oppress her and particularly her as a black woman, right? And not a black man, right? Um, But it's so helpful to have these conversations to be reminded that what I read and experience as liberative, right? May not be seen by everybody in that way or might incite fears. Oh, it's not that Jews don't see scripture as liberative. Uh, We do, but Mm -hmm. not in the civic, neutral, secular square because we have bought in to the Enlightenment Mm -hmm. project and its secularist carving out of a neutral space because that's the only space that Judaism can exist in a predominantly Christian world Mm. with its own integrity which is to say that Christians on their own accord agree to background their Christianity or at least keep it at home, Mm quote-unquote. And we do the same, and we meet, and if we're going to duke out the Confederate flag, good, let's duke it out. And it just so happens that the Jews and the blacks are going to be on the same side of that fight. Mm -hmm. But as a a lever, Judaism is prone to feeling that lever as being used against us, adding insult to injury, our own lever, i.e. our scripture against (laughs) us. So it's, it's complicated. Yeah. What but. I love about this exchange, too, when I think about the Enlightenment Project and I think about all my good studies, you know, courses on race in college, right? I think about, you know, Thomas Jefferson and his notes on the state of Virginia, which is one of the, one of the key texts in terms of thinking about Enlightenment um, theory and philosophy in the United States doesn't acknowledge black people as human, right? And so for speaking on behalf of myself, I can't speak on behalf 
all black folks, right? <laughs> Let's um, just go for it. Yeah, <laughs> right? Like, oh, Lord, I would never want to get myself wrapped up in that question, to... right? Um, because, heaven forbid, we believe that any of our communities are monolithic, and yeah. that removes some of the agency and humanity usually, from us. They usually make sure we don't uh, right. indulge in that illusion. <laughs> but the Enlightenment Project was is the same project that allowed our people to be enslaved, right? Right. <laughs> right? The Enlightenment Project was the same project that... Um, birth eugenics and the assumption that the black Holocaust. people were right I, I like mean, it's, it's it's really interesting to think about um the tensions as we think about history um and rub up against it but i think you're right in that it's been interesting to see the ways in which and i can only speak for black christians and i want to be very specific there too because Black community is not monolithic. I think right. one third of Muslims in the United States are black. You know, I know have plenty of friends who are Jews of color, right? right? Sure. Um, but speaking on behalf of my my own faith tradition, um, there's a way in which the in the public square, in particular, historically, that because our faith has been the thing that's drived us and helped us survive or as my grandmother would say, make a way out of no way. It ends up showing up in really interesting ways in the public square, whether it be the civil rights movement <laughs> and the centering of um, black clergy leadership in that movement. The point being that the separation of like faith and church and state becomes really muddled when we think about our politics and how we show up in the it's, public square, and it's, it's fascinating. It's very muddled, it's very yeah. muddled. And I would say that most Jews would fall on the radical side of the spectrum, favoring radical separation. In the African-American community, I'm aware of uh, Seventh-day Adventists mm -hmm. being very, very strong in separation of church and state because they're a minority within a minority, and they're mm -hmm. sensitive to the, to the power of religion as a very, very blunt instrument. Mm -hmm. uh, I think what's interesting is religious communities, such as Jews and Adventists, being so wary of religion that to me is a, a, a powerful lesson. Uh, I, I want to get back to another topic that you raised, which I found fascinating, which is the issue, it's come up twice in our conversation, the issue of uh, racial versus post-racial. Mm. And I want to ask you an evaluative question. I want to ask you how you feel about the pros and cons. Forget, forget, let's forget reality for a minute. Let's, mm -hmm. let's assume that we can't claim to know reality. Let's assume we choose to view reality a certain way. We either, review, we either view reality as a post-racialist, not because racist, racial distinctions don't matter, but because we think that fundamentally they're constructed and false or, or not coming from some kind of deeper truth, as opposed to a racial worldview which views difference as real. Now, in the racial view, I'm not proposing that we view it as a hierarchical reality, mm. just as a, 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 a flat reality of difference. We might call this particularism versus universalism, mm. or uh, a kind of specificity versus a kind of generality. I want to ask you your human opinion, your, your, as a religious leader and as an individual, as a black woman who has a, a womanist theology <laughs> that moves you clearly, mm. what would you prefer? You in your community and other communities around you, Jewish, Latino, Catholic, Irish, you name it, what would you prefer we embark on the next stage of American history mm -hmm. in the context of? Would you prefer we sort of live in a racialized world and aim for it to be flat? 
in terms of values and, and, and the absence of hierarchies? Or would you actually prefer that we try to break down the boundaries or even deny those boundaries in the first place and say that we're post-racial? Thank you for that really thoughtful question, because I don't know that anyone's ever asked me before. <laughs> My instinct is to say that because I'm part of a community whose history has been denied to them or glossed over or um, erased in certain contexts, I don't want to let go of that history. I don't want to let go of that particularity of who I am and the stock I come from. I I signed up for Ancestry.com recently, and I found somebody born in 1877. It was my great-great-grandfather. And I saw his World War I draft card. It reminded me that I'm part of a larger, much larger legacy. And so my, my instinct, as we're talking, is to say that in a dream world where everything could be what the Christians sometimes call the kingdom of God, right? Like the, or the kingdom of God, where all people are able to be and flourish and there would be no distinctions. But I'm not ready to let go of the particularity of why, my history. Why, why yeah. would we want to work? Wouldn't what's the benefit of a distinct, uh, distinctionless universe over a good universe with distinctions? Yeah, and it, you know it's interesting. I think about this is where I put on my like theological hat. <laughs> um, I think about as the idea that we're all made in the image of God, right? This. Um, what we would call in Christianity the Mago Day, right? One of the most challenging and exciting parts of this past year, especially being in sometimes very intense conversations around issues of race and gender, has been even when I encounter people who vehemently disagree with me, if my theology gives space for this idea of the Imago Day, that means there's a God presence in them too. And sometimes I have to search really hard for it. (laughs) But how beautiful and wonderful to think that I don't know everything about God and that the diversity that God creates on this earth is an opportunity to expand our knowledge of who and what God is. How beautiful. And I don't ever want to lose the particularities, right? (laughs) Because of that, right? Like, I don't want to lose the particularities. Because I want my knowledge of God to keep expanding. (laughs) That's a message that Jews can resonate with. That nourishes us. We need to have that because we don't want to be Christian or Muslim or whatever. We we also feel the burden of uh, the necessity of opening up a space for the 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 divine spark, the divine presence, the divine core of all humanity and creation. So there's um, there's a lot to work with there without assimilating quite quite an image of God to, to emulate. There's a, a surah that a Muslim friend told me about, and I'm going to quote it horribly, but it, it says that God made us different nations and tribes that we would come to know each other. And it's really funny for me as a Christian to be quoting the Quran as I'm talking, right? Um, on, a, on a recording aimed towards the reform movement of Judaism, right? <laughs> but it's something that's always stuck with me. And, you know, getting to know this friend... And that scripture really has sat with me, that jives with my theology. I think jives with what you're saying, that there's something beautiful about the particularity. There's something wonderful about the particularity. Every barrier is also a bridge. Mm-hmm. And we can, we can, if we choose, keep both of those things 
but we have to do it. It's not natural, necessarily. It's hard work, but clearly you're doing the hard work, so uh, kudos to you yeah, and all the best. You. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about, any parting shots, anything you want people to know? One of the things that has been coming up a lot and has been in the national discourse a lot is yeah, around this question please. of, you know, Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter. Okay, right. Um, or some of the arguments that I've heard against the movement, why don't you focus on black-on-black crime, right? <laughs> Which are really controversial uh, in some ways. I mean, my answer to the latter is that people have been focusing on black and black crime for a long time on the south side of Chicago and in different areas, but nobody paid attention to it, or nobody is paying attention to it. And that if I'm shot by another black person, it's much more likely that person will get arrested and there will be some type of recourse, right? But the tension that I think we rub up against when that comes to things like law enforcement, which, right. you know, there are black cops in my congregation, right? And so I think there's almost a false narrative that all black people are against the cops. But I don't. I also don't want to erase people's narrative, personal narratives and experiences, right. or negate the fact that many people, uh, myself included, have felt uncomfortable or have had their lives threatened by law enforcement in the United States. And law enforcement is intended to protect the public good and public safety, right? And more often than not, because we don't talk about this issue of race in the United States, the public interests that they're directed at protecting are white interests, right? That come down in the social contract from, they're just the enforcers. The real question for me becomes, what is it about the state of our country that people believe that black folks are criminal or Latino folks are illegal, right? Or, you know, in some cases, trans folks are immoral, right? Like that we label certain types of bodies in certain ways and buy into those narratives that then become reflected in the way that we police those bodies. So that's one thing I've been thinking about a lot. But, but can I uh, yeah. a- ask you a question about the law enforcement, which is obviously yeah. in yeah. the forefront of a lot of people's minds mm-hmm. for good reason. One proposed solution I heard was, you know, you, you work in communities. We've been speaking about fascinating ideas, but you do a lot of this really hard work in the communities. Uh, one of the policy proposals in the wake of Ferguson and the other events surrounding police violence was a simple one that I found very compelling, and I wanted to see how you responded to it, which was that the first step from a practical perspective should just aim to be getting police forces that are roughly proportionate to the populations they police. Do you think that that would go any distance in achieving what you're aiming for? I think it's a good first step, but it can't stop there. It's the same argument that can be made in education, that it's really important for black and brown youth to have black and brown teachers, to have someone that's reflecting or who at least visually reflects, because I, again... I like to leave space for particularity, <laughs> right? Um, their community. So I think that's a good first step. We've seen the ways in which diversifying certain segments and sectors within our society has led to really important reforms within those communities. It can't be the last step. It we, might be a necessary pre-step, though. Yeah, I think it might be. I think it might be a necessary pre-step, uh, along with accompanying with other very practical things, right? So body cameras has come, have come yeah, up recently. And LA is, is working hard on that and pioneering uh, quite a bit. Yeah. Those 
cops who arrested Freddie Gray, the ones that are being prosecuted now, are a mix, right? They're black, they're Latino, they're white. It's a necessary first step, but until we reach a critical mass of yeah. folks right, in those positions, like it can't be um, isolated, can't be isolated sure. or done alone. Yeah. Sure. So, so another conversation that I was hoping to, to dive into a little bit because it seems to be a barrier for folks in, um, is, is this question around the Black Lives Matter movement right. or the movement for black lives? The pushback you get because people are uncomfortable with people saying black lives matter, they, they would prefer an absolute statement that lives matter. Right. And so now we're back to particular and universal. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so what, what are your thoughts? I feel a real tension. I, I feel it within my religious community. Uh, the first piece of hate mail I ever got hate email was from a fellow Christian because I was interviewed about this topic um, for the Huffington Post and said, I think we need to interrogate what happens or what is um, reactive in us in naming the particularity, right? Right. You know, some of my friends and I would not be in the streets if black lives truly did matter, right? But there's, for some reason, naming that particularity particularity is triggering something in people. And that's the more interesting question for me. Of course, all lives matter. But in the in the way that our society functions, it's clear that all lives don't matter to some extent. There's, there's that factual problem of the fact that there is a, a difference. You're right. It is about why do people feel that they have to say that. Because of the individualist narrative and because people have bought in, especially the people who got the benefit of it, the Enlightenment story, it's very hard for people to just say there is a particularism. And then if there's a particular that is suffering then the, 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 the general that is particular, that doesn't know it's particular, becomes the oppressor. And mm-hmm. in the Enlightenment model, and because they're good people, fundamentally, they, that, that, that irks them terribly. Mm-hmm. You can't say black lives matter mm-hmm. without, without calling on that, um, that sense of, um, it's not betrayal, it's a sense of, it's, it, you're unmasking someone's moral muddy waters in ways that, that question the system they believe in. And more than just you accusing them of being bad people, it's, it's you, <laughs> right. you, you're, you're reminding them that their system, which claims to be race and religion neutral, isn't. And it disrupts. It, it, it disrupts. It disrupts their sense of place in the world. Yeah. It disrupts. I can see the pushback being uh, pretty um, hard. I want to thank Reverend Jennifer Bailey for joining us. It's been a pleasure to have you and your wonderful insights and good work in all you do. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure.